0: Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations overcome the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, John Maniachi, who is currently a senior software engineer at Perchwell. John joins us today from New York, New York, in the United States of America. <laughs> John Maniaci, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right, John. So as you reflect on your experience in our industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software?
1: I think that at the core of what we might call well-maintained software or maintainable software, I might be stealing this answer actually from some of your previous guests I have listened to a whole bunch of your episodes. So I wish I could quote them by name, but I don't remember who said this exactly, but I agree with, it. And I can't think of a better one because I agree with it so much. And that's that engineers should be able to change the software without fear. And really that means fear of breaking something in production. And I think that... You know, based on some some jobs I've had in the past and thinking about those experiences when we've been afraid to make changes, but you have to make changes, of course, right? Software is always evolving. It's always changing to meet the needs of users or clients or the business. When we've been afraid to make changes, it can create a culture that I think makes us be defensive in our programming practices. And by that, I mean, we're actually writing kind of defensive code, like always checking for nil or always maybe catching errors at a high level that we, we shouldn't be. And that can actually create more problems, right? So you kind of start digging this hole sometimes. And I think that is the main characteristic that you can, you can change it and things are going to be okay. But John, how do we
0: make sure this never happens again?
1: (laughs) Well, we can't guarantee it. There are strategies to do this. And of course, and, and I know this is a theme also in, in many of your episodes is testing, right? Obviously, it doesn't have to be automated testing. QA processes can be manual. And I think that makes sense for a lot of different businesses. But I don't think that... I, I've worked at places that have done both. And I've found that when engineers own their own testing, usually through automated testing, that that is almost always a better experience for everyone from engineering to product to business to everyone even QA if you even have QA people on top of that because it means that engineers are really owning the code base a lot more as opposed to kind of like throwing it over the fence a little bit and saying oh well we have a couple of QA people or something like that and they're gonna catch it but the reality is that when you have manual QA testing they're really just depending on the surface size of your product in your application, like there's just no way they're going to catch a regression in a module that maybe they don't expect because there's just too many permutations eventually, right? Maybe when it starts out really simple, it it might be like fairly easy or fairly easy to test core functionality, but testing, automated testing, headless browser testing, or I mean, Cypress has like the virtual DOM kind of like testing. I don't know too much about that, but um, I know that's a popular project now is definitely a way we can reduce fear, I think. I also think testing. And writing code and testing it side by side makes us better programmers also. Not just because we're catching our own kind of mistakes as we write code, but I think that when you are forced to test your own code programmatically, you become a better programmer because writing code that's really hard to test, in my experience anyway, is usually code that is very tightly coupled, it's hard to maintain usually in my experience. So by writing the tests and being forced to write the tests, like we don't want to write complicated tests, right? But if you have a super complicated method or class or function and you now have to stub and mock a bazillion things with so many conditionals, and you have to test every condition and inject the, you know, inject the state of how that condition is gonna get met, well, that's a pain to test, especially in you know in RSpec or these other tools we have. And so I've definitely found myself writing code and saying. I don't want to test this, this is awful, right? So, okay, how can we break it apart? We're g- we have to break this apart, or I don't want to have to stub and mock a web request here or something like that, that needs to go in its own module. We're doing this too much, like in too many places. And so I kind of think that having to write the test means we're writing more maintainable code, not just because the tests exist, but because you had to write them in the first place.
0: Hey folks, it's me, Robbie. I want you to take a moment and close your eyes. Now picture your code in your applications as a symphony. Now to keep that symphony playing smoothly, you need an orchestra of tools. That's where our podcast sponsor, AppSignal, takes center stage. They combine the elegance of error tracking, the precision of performance monitoring, and the harmony of logging into one symphonic suite. Whether you're composing with Ruby, jamming with Elixir, orchestrating with Node.js, or harmonizing with Python, or maybe even a little bit of flourish of JavaScript, AppSignal's got the sheet music for you. And here's the crescendo. Plans start at just $23 US a month. That's got to be music to your budget's ears. Plus they're certified ISO 27001 and they dance the GDPR and HIPAA compliance beats. So don't miss a beat, my friends. Head on over to AppSignal.com and tell them that your good friend Robbie from maintainable sent you. Now, open your eyes and let the symphony of smooth coding begin. Let's get back to our show. It's interesting. I don't know how often you've been able to be around in the early era of a software project where you can start to set up some of those, say, testing patterns in your application. Is it a safe assumption you joined projects and organizations where that hadn't been done super successfully and and were able to come in and help make sense of that and overcome those? You mentioned like stubbing and mocking things out just to get a request to work, you know, in the first place, let alone be able to test the small little change you're making.
1: Yeah. So I've joined different organizations at, at different moments in their life. You know, for the last solid 15 years or so, I've been joining, I would say, like pretty early startups in small companies. I've actually been lucky in that at least two of the kind of jobs I've had, I was one of the early technical hires and was able to kind of build the team or have at least input into who's on the team and and be able to like set some of those processes and standards surrounding testing. That being said, I've also, you know, joined organizations where there were no tests or the test coverage was pretty slim. And I think it's hard to turn the ship a little bit when you join an organization where there's not a lot of testing and, you know, because there might not be a culture of it. And when you join an organization like that, there's a lot of different layers of the organization I think you have to kind of pitch to, to change the kind of process to include testing. You have to pitch the engineering team, of course, and your colleagues and maybe and maybe engineering management to say like, sometimes you don't, sometimes they get it that they need, you're right. Sometimes they already know like, oh yeah, we should be doing that. But I think the harder pitches sometimes to the like business function or the business side where you say, okay, well, we're going to slow things down just a little bit maybe now in the short term to make sure that things are really well tested, it's going to take a little longer, right? Because writing tests does take time. I mean, sometimes you have as much testing code as you do like application code, but you have to pitch, right? Well, in the long run, though, we're going to be able to be more responsive to the business as things change and as requirements change.
0: The thing that I often hear from, at least, you know, this is, you know, anecdotal, but my world and being in the consulting side of things, coming to organizations and either they're like some people, like I'm air quoting the business or product side of things that are not necessarily in the engineering side of the, the part of the organization, but they're, they work with engineering, you know, and they're kind of sometimes either a surprise, like, oh, they've talked about, like, they, they need to do some sort of testing, but it obviously works. We have it in production. We've been testing it. Our users test it every day. We know there's some issues and bugs here and there. And then, but they're like, but new people joining our team are concerned that we don't have more tests so it's like this extra thing and do we have time for that and then like mike and it's always this interesting kind of conversation of being like well how does someone new coming in to know that they don't break something ahead of something that's already there don't feel like they already know if they broke something or not somewhere else and they go basically that's not what you're focusing on if you're especially if you're infrastructure has kind of grown quite a bit. You may not have, you have everything in your head, right? Uh, it's probably unlikely to have everything in your head. And then you hear from engineer, you know, developers like, well, I don't have the time for it, or I have to ask for permission. I'm kind of like, not really, but so it's like, I always think about like, what does a team think about in terms of how do they agree what is done? Like everybody's testing their work most likely to some degree, it could be manual, you know, it could be in right. a console and they're like, checking that their validations are working that they just add like this seems to be working let's push it to production this fix seems to fix the bug that we're experiencing but to then write automated testing it seems like this whole other endeavor it's challenging to bake that into your team's process if it's on something a core competency of the team already or something they've seen the value of do you feel like you was something that you needed to get to a point in your career where do you remember when you started to see the real value of writing tests like uh, of automated testing versus just being like i'm doing this because some people in some blogs or some people that wrote books that seem to know way more than i do said that this is the right way to do it and this is going to protect us do you feel like there was an aha moment like yes they were right or are you still waiting for that
1: moment Oh, no, I'm way past that moment, I would say. I mean, I would say maybe 15 years ago, I joined a startup, very small. I was a consultant at first and eventually became kind of the technical lead and the CTO of that very small project. And so when I had joined, the um, code base was not huge. I mean, it, it was a PHP project. So at that time, they didn't have any tests they were experiencing bugs and problems that were happening because they had a lot of consultants contributing to the code in, I would say, a fairly chaotic way. And I kind of had a sense of like, okay, we need to have a testing process here. At the time, I didn't really know how we would go about that. You know, at that time in the PHP world, I'm sure I haven't been in that world in a while, I don't even know if I knew what like the testing library kind of was like in two thousand and eight mm-hmm. or something like that in PHP. I don't know. I mean, there was one I remember, but um, PHP unit or something. Or... Yes, there you go. I think that's it. And after having left that project, and then a couple of jobs later, I was in a position where I was being hired as a director of engineering at a brand new company, mm-hmm. essentially with a brand new product, a brand new team, and our first engineering hire, who was a friend of mine, who I knew he'd worked at a bunch of different startups since we kind of last connected as colleagues, and he had all this new experience, and specifically in Rails, and when we were talking about how we're going to do this, and you know the product was still in flux. The vision for like what this thing was going to do, we had like a, there, you know, the company and the founder had like a, a vision of what kind of problem they wanted to solve and the in the space they wanted to solve it in. But exactly like what the product was going to be was still very much in flux. Even as we began kind of the core model, like the core app, like the core business logic, the core data model, and my friend said, well, okay, we should test this. And he knew he had learned a lot about RSpec and testing and unit testing. I had done a little bit of like Selenium testing and headless, you know, Capybara testing. And, and I said, yeah, like, great, we should do it. I had seen the problems of not having automated tests in the past. And, and we began writing, I wouldn't say we did TDD, but we definitely made sure that whenever we committed code, there was a test that covered it. Certainly we made a lot of, I don't know, but I would say mistakes in the testing methodology, but I think we over-tested at first and we got better at like learning, well, you don't need to test, you don't need to test anything about active record, right? Like don't, don't test your scopes. Like you can do other things, right? We eventually decided like you shouldn't write controller tests either. I think that might be now a kind of Rails idea, right? Like in the community, like don't test controller tests or don't, don't test the controller, but yeah. And I'm, you know, we also wrote a really solid test suite in Capybara back when it was you know, poltergeist or whatever the thing was. And now it's like, now you do headless Chrome, right? I can say that without the test coverage we had, especially at the integration level, we would never, Oh, okay, I don't wanna say never. That's a hard word. It would have been very difficult and very scary to do some of the refactors we had to do as business requirements changed or we the business had a new opportunity, let's say. I can speak to one really specifically where the business had an opportunity to work with an outside client essentially, but they wanted something really specifically done, just slightly different from the product. Right. And from them, they're looking through the UIs, right? They don't know right. like how this is engineered. They're not, they weren't technical. And they just see on the UI like, oh, well, you know, in this part, look, you've got some check or you have some radio button selections. Like we want to select multiple, like it, we want them to be checkboxes or um, checkboxes, right? To have multiple selection in this one case. And the founder who was also not technical was like, okay, we well, have this opportunity. This would be great to, to try something new with this new you know entity but they need this done can we do it it should be simple right it's just some check boxes versus like a radio button well this uh-huh. is like a core like what you're selecting on the UI without getting into the details like it spoke to like a core association in our data model right users to something else it was like a, a has one to now well they, right. they need a has many but all the old but all the other people in the system still need to see that as a has one right they're not going to be changing their concept of it from a user perspective and so Because this was such a core association that had to change, I mean, all the way from, right, a database migration, but then all of your, the way you reference that inside the code across all of your model code, all of your controller code, all the way up to the UI being able to display checkboxes versus a radio button, but only for some people, right? It was a big change. And because we had such good test coverage, I could pretty confidently say it's like, this is going to work, (laughs) you know, before we actually... We're going to release it because we could keep our old tests and say, well, except for some Capimara selectors, pretty much say like, well, if you're a default type of user, you still, you know, are going to see a particular thing and your entire payments process, checkout flow, like the whole thing works right. still so for you, right? Whereas, you know, okay, well now if your user has a particular state associated with it, you're now going to have, as has many, you can have a lot of these things and it works in a very different way all the way through this, this flow. And so having that test coverage meant we could do that. We also did some other, I would say, maybe crazy things that organizations don't normally do. Like, you know, the JavaScript world, of course, like changes. I mean, it's settled yeah. down now, but back in 2012 when we started the project, like that world has changed so much from, you know, just recently when I left that company. And so we were really good at trying to like stay on top of change. We didn't want to jump on like projects that seemed like they were moving too fast or hadn't settled down yet. So we started with probably jQuery and like, I don't even know if CoffeeScript was a thing yet, but we definitely moved, migrated to like Backbone and CoffeeScript and Marionette JS. And then we had actually built some SPAs some products that were SPAs in those technologies. And then eventually migrated all of that to like the Hotwire Turbo Stimulus kind of ecosystem, like all of it. And with parity in terms of like what those apps did based on the old system, there was no functional change. It was just like, we need our, the backbone code was becoming hard to maintain. The Marionette stuff was like hard to understand in a lot of ways. And we were able to Again, confidently say, we know that this entire SPA like, works, except for you know, perhaps some weird edge cases that we didn't test, but we could run our test suite we you know on Circle CI on our local host, and say, it works. The interface is still working the way you
0: expect it to be. So and- in those scenarios, you were able to get away to some extent, or maybe rather successfully not have to support multiple JavaScript frameworks, just because that's what you use at that point era of when you were building said features, you were able to kind of not only introduce a new thing, but also then go back and maybe re- remove the jQuery thing and, or the backbone right. thing and use what's kind of new and successfully be able to do that.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, we didn't do it all in one go of, you know, that was too much, but we were able to definitely, you know, take a, an isolated feature or, you know, like a like a user kind of flow and say, okay, well, we're going to do this one, right? We're going to take out the backbone and this like, this one's going to become, you know, turbo and... Yeah.
0: I'm curious about when you were going through that sort of process, I mean, cause just thinking about some of the projects that we get to get exposure to at times, did you find, I mean, if you were going to experiment with something like say like hotwire or some other JavaScript framework um, that pops up and would you have a preference to work on a new set of functionality with the, the new to you thing, or would you advise teams to maybe consider no, rather than maybe working off something new, maybe you should go back and the thing that you already know how it should work see if you can make it work and replace the backbone first. How would you kind of, what did you do? And and do you have? Do you feel like that's the better way to do it? Or would you actually recommend maybe refactor something else before you build a new thing, I think?
1: Yeah, I think it might be wise to try something small in the new technology that feels fairly isolated. Like the first thing we did, I think, was some of our internal like admin panel types of tools that end users never really interacted with only like internal company users did and not even a whole lot of them it was really a view into the database and like how things were going and and like payment kind of tally numbers and stuff accounting stuff and so that spa wasn't terribly complicated either was an spa and it kind of allowed us to say okay well what if we do you know a few of these views right now in turbo does it work for us does it ergonomically feel good. You know, we've done a lot of research into it and just like some of the, what the pitfalls were in the community at the time. And yeah, I don't I don't necessarily think it makes sense to like, hey, we're just going to wholesale go back to this old thing and just like replace your JavaScript solution. I think it makes more sense to just take something small, maybe even something that internal users are looking at, you know, in order to see if it's really going to fit your use case. That,
0: that makes sense. Yeah, I'm always, I'm always curious about stuff like that because I think we, I've seen a lot of, different uh, stories play out in different teams and I feel like I've ever seen it done in super perfectly in, in any sense, but at least being like, oh, there's maybe some different approaches I you mentioned. So you maybe work on some small isolated areas as a test bed, make sure you feel pretty good about it. Like the, you know, mentioning how does it feel ergonomically to play with, you know, use this new to you functionality. You can do experiments, yeah. read lots of blog posts and articles and stuff about something, but until you actually start playing with it and seeing if you can put it to a real use case, it's kind of hard to get a, your head wrap around that. And then- but also, I would imagine you do you feel like in those scenarios you needed to talk with kind of air quoting the product team, product people, whoever's deciding what the priorities are to be like, why are we doing this other new thing again? Why do you we have to go back and how many new things are we supporting? And how do you kind of keep that kind of manage expectations on like, hey, we're going to use this new thing? Or did you kind of do it because you had a lot of ownership over that and you didn't? Really yeah.
1: Permission? So we had, I mean, in that role as director of engineering, I, I had complete ownership over our technical implementation. I was kind of the end of the line at like, If engineers wanted to try something, like I was the one who kind of could say, well, okay, let's do it. Or "Mm, I don't know, how can we approach this? Right. Obviously like timelines and how long it's going to take and that stuff had to be communicated to other parts of the organization, depending on how many like resources that might take up or how that was going to affect our ability to execute on other things that were happening. But yeah, at the end of the day, if we weren't breaking the kind of UX experience The other parts of the organization left it, you know, it was the engineering team had ownership of how we were going to implement that.
0: Hey, hey, it's me, Robbie, again. I just wanted to say, again, thank you for listening to the podcast, but have you headed over to maintainable.fm in your browser and clicked on newsletter yet and subscribed to our new slider? Why would you want to do that? Well, when we have new episodes, you'll get an email from me saying, hey, there's a new episode. But also, I'll also tell you about episodes you may not have listened to before. I've recorded over 160 of these already, so I have plenty in the vault. So if you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll hear about some of those episodes as well. And with that, let's get back to our interview with John Maniachi. You know, one of the things I wanted to kind of dig into with you, and you'd already touched on the PHP project, but there was another interesting aspect of that project that I thought was interesting that you shared ahead of this conversation was that they had experimented with a interesting payment structure for their software developers.
1: Oh right? yes. I don't know right sometimes you join i don't know especially when i was like younger and a little earlier in my career i'd be like oh the project sounds cool i'll just do it right i was like less concerned about maybe some of the business stuff it was just kind of like what am i going to learn here and oh i'm going to work in a space i'm interested in and i don't know i, I know php sir Let, let's do this and so you know maybe now i would be why I, I may, maybe i didn't know what the red flags were maybe now i pay more attention to red flags perhaps when like joining a place but yeah back then they had The founders of this company were not technical and they had found their first kind of consultant, I guess, to help them stand up project and the product. Uh, They had a designer, that consultant hired some other consultants, very funnily, some of them who I knew from prior work. I just feel like at that time in New York City, like the dev scene was smaller than it is today, back in the mid 2000, 2005, six, seven era. Anyway, I just, in the code base, I was like, wait, I've worked with this person before. Anyway, (laughs) years later. Yeah, they had. So the founders, they weren't technical. They didn't have that understanding of like what, I don't know, what motivates different developers to operate in different ways. And they had started when they started the project, they worked with their kind of principal engineer, if you will, the consultant to start kind of defining features areas of the code base breaking it down into kind of tickets if you will right and like stories and okay well there's a whole feature set here there's another one here maybe there's a whole uh, you know ui section of the ui that a user can get to and interact with the system and they started paying consultants per like feature that they completed and so the incentive was to deliver it was to ship features, right? And so the incentive was to ship features quickly. So you get another project and get paid for the next one. I think, you know, code quality definitely suffered. And they did figure that out before, right before I joined that, hey, we were paying people this way. Like we don't do it that way anymore. And it led to like a lot of problems. You know, that's, it's
0: interesting. Were those individual contractors or was that like with a consulting agency type thing?
1: Those were individual, just people from, yeah, who had at the time Craigslist in New York was a big way you would find like consulting work at the time.
0: Yeah. I've got some of my first jobs via Craigslist Yeah, so and bandmates and other things too. But, um, one of the reasons I, my company does in the consulting space and working with, we usually don't work a lot with startups and, and, you know, the secrets, it's not so secret, I suppose, but one of the reasons I really kind of strayed away from wanting to work with those startups, because a lot of people that were at least back in the, you know, the mid two thousands were, not tech focused necessarily themselves. They had an idea for something and they had a bit of money and they wanted to say like, how much would it cost to build this web app, right? And they wanted some reasonable range and have expectations on their budgets. And then, you know, then it was, so it almost would get broken down to estimates per, you know, kind of like feature area of the application. We would try to do our best, to give like an X to Y range, and then it was hard for them to wrap their head around, like, well, how much is this going to cost to build? Can you commit to that number? You know, because they want to demand it. Right. They couldn't just like write a blank check and be like, well, if it takes three times longer, you're going to pay three times the cost. And so there's always this interesting negotiating balance there. And like, and then there's also another thing that I've always found complicated, you know, and, and maybe coming to us as an agency is we're getting estimates from multiple people and we're trying to come up with a range there that we feel some level of confidence. So we're not you know, taking on the risk of it taking way longer than we thought it would. Cause then we're kind of getting screwed on the, you know, the arrangement ourselves if we just drastically underestimate or we don't manage scope with the client and they're like, well, what does it mean? What is this feature supposed to do? And wait, it doesn't do what I expect it to because you know, that's why software development's hard to estimate because there's right. usually most people that have an idea don't actually know what they want until they see a little bit of it. Right. And then it sparks other conversations and they're like, it would Yes, it would make our lives easier as software developers if our clients, our customers, our product teams would come to us with everything that they hoped they knew that they needed and what they don't need. And it could tell us what was nice to have versus need to have. But that's always an ongoing conversation that needs to be kind of worked through together in a collaborative fashion. Point of this story is that we eventually got away from developing a lot of startups because that was just really complicated to navigate tight budgets. And so I can understand why a lot of companies were like, How much would it cost to design this and how much it will cost to build this? But maybe in that scenario, was it just like per feature was just a flat rate or were they giving, do you know if they were getting estimates on per feature?
1: Yeah, I because a little before I joined, I I think that they uh, would kind of work together with the founders and the kind of principal engineer to figure out like how long would this Mm -hmm. take, like how big a feature is it, right? And kind of... Estimate and budget that out. That was my understanding of how they were like approaching the work. So it's not
0: not wildly out of the ordinary, I suppose, but it's like I can see how you're also saying like what creates a different sort of problem if they're not accountable for taking care of it post-release, right? Or post-deploy. They're not there's no warranty on the work that they're providing in the sense that they shipped it as quick as possible and their incentives might be to just get onto the next feature so they can get paid again and and is an interesting challenge because we talk a lot of, there is a lot of people, I'm in the, again, in the agency consulting world, there's a lot of people talking about like value-driven pricing. Sure. And, you know, and I'm like, well, we're taking on all the risk and (laughs) which is, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to weigh that up and figure it out if, you know, people are outsourcing.
1: I think that's hard because I think that maybe as tech people, that idea of value-driven pricing, you know, it's kind of a business concept that comes, I think, from the, business world. And Mm -hmm. I even think this has to do with like how we as engineers negotiate salaries, right? And like, how do we decide when we're joining an organization, how to do that? And, you know, if you read blog posts about that, they always say, well, you have to know what your value is. And like, that's really hard, right? Like when you're someone who writes code all day and isn't looking at like run rates and business numbers and ARR and all the other types of things that people on a finance side of a, a company might look at, like it's difficult for us to do. And I always find that advice... At least for, you know, not in the consulting world, maybe I'm not as familiar with that, but just as someone who's joined many organizations and gone through like that process, it's like a hard thing to put a number on.
0: And then there's another thought I hear from developers sometimes where they're like, oh, it's really great that this, you know, this new feature or this new functionality or this new technology thing that we can take advantage of is going to allow me to write stuff quicker. But why would I want to do that if I'm paid for my time? you know, there's like this interesting, like, what incentive is it for me to ship more, ship quicker? If the more I try to like optimize my, you know, what I'm producing every hour, then there's like this, like, I'm giving the company way more value now, but they're not necessarily compensating me. I'm not saying I agree with these people, but I I hear this kind of like little, this little thing, like, I can do things twice as fast, but are you, are you actually expecting me to deliver things two times as much,
1: but you're not going to pay me twice as much? my take on that is again i think different things motivate people differently and someone who's really motivated in that like i don't know compensation way kind of in the immediate term with money yeah, i think would probably have those thoughts i actually don't think i have those thoughts very often at least not when i'm in like a full-time role somewhere maybe I i have done some consulting work in my history and sometimes those projects, sometimes they're an hourly kind of rate situation. Sometimes they're more like, Hey, this is a really big project. We need like a a budget for this whole thing, which is, which is different. But um, yeah, I I don't know, like someone who's working full time somewhere, I think if you're motivated just by the money aspect of it, like maybe this isn't, I don't know the business you should Mm -hmm. be in. I mean, not saying we don't get paid well, right? Like technology tends to pay well. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying like, if, if that's really like your thought. I would say, not even if you work in technology, but like if you're sitting there thinking like, well, if I work faster, I should get paid more. I don't know. To me, it's like a misalignment of, of like your passion or interest. Sure.
0: That's, yeah, you know, that, that's fair. I, and I also think that we, as software engineers, we work closely with people that are in slightly different roles that like, say like a designer who designs a logo and like like, well, you're not necessarily getting compensated typically based off maybe if you're an employee, some are based off of how long it takes you to design the logo, you might be paying some sort of price range for a company or individual designer to design a logo for you. And you're bringing in all their years of experience and it's not the, so this is an interesting thing. Like, I think we sometimes see ourselves as kind of very similar to that, but then we're not necessarily designing like this artifact that can give you a quick objective or subjective combined response be like, yes, that's what we need. That's the logo first. Or a second draft was perfect. We're done. um There's never going to be any bugs with this logo. That's not necessarily true, but you know, like it's a like this. It's a different sort of creative output, and you want to get compensated for your you know, kind of air quoting again, your genius uh you know, <laughs> skill set. But as software engineers, we're also weirdly, you know, build by our time because we've yet to come up with a better way to structure this. In the same way that when you go to get your car worked on, you might ask a mechanic, "How much is this going to?" This is how much the service charges, blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. Money is, it's it's an interesting part of the equation, I suppose. So I'm curious, John, do you find yourself more often on team rewrite or team refactor?
1: Hmm, I would say usually refactor. I mean, yeah, I, I think almost always refactor. I don't think... Well, let's take an example, even we're talking about the PHP shop, right? And that place that had definitely a lot of problems. Their code wasn't even like horizontally scalable. They were doing like local media processing. They weren't using like cloud. I mean, cloud services were a little bit nascent then, but there were they did exist, you know, and there are other ways we had to think about those things back then. But they had like a lot of problems. And it would have been, I guess, sure, a recommendation to come in and say, oh, like we need to rewrite this, or you know, I don't know, we should do it in. I don't know it shouldn't be in symphony it should be in whatever laravel or whatever you know different framework or something or another technology stack altogether but the reality is like it it mostly worked right it likes it met the product needs and it was a very early stage startup they were still trying to find like product market fit in their case for sure i would not and did not recommend like oh, we should rewrite this they didn't even know if it like worked in the marketplace yet it definitely had a lot of bugs and we had to fix those but Yeah, that would usually mean refactoring. Mm -hmm. I think that rewrites, I think it's Joel Spolsky, maybe. I can't remember his quote about rewrites, but I think he has a pretty specific quote that I can't remember exactly now, but basically it's like you shouldn't do them, like a full rewrite. That being said, like there's definitely, I think times when you work on some code that may be older or maybe the context has been lost about like why was this designed at all or I mean we know it has a function and we know what that function is but like why was it designed this particular way or like what were these people thinking. Because and maybe they're gone, right? They're no longer part of the team or the organization and you can't, you can't ask them anymore. Like no one knows anymore. And those, those I think can be like the frustrating moments where you're like, I don't understand this at all. Like we should just rewrite it, right? But especially if you're dealing with some really complicated code base or part of the code, like the reality is if it's generally working, it's usually better to take baby steps into getting it massaged into something that feels either maybe more maintainable or more performant or whatever the issue is that like you're having with it
0: do you recall in your career how you might have started thinking like how can i refine or massage or refactor something was there like a some form of education that you went through books or literature that you had been exposed to or just being around and figure like i can just make some small incremental improvements here
1: yeah, you know, I, there are definitely books on refactoring that I like are on my list to read, and I just like have not found time <laughs> for them yet. And, you know, I, I feel like, yeah, I, I don't have that reading done or learning done, but definitely a lot of times what I'll try to do is if there's a a piece of code or, a let's say, a functional area of a code base, and I want to preface this by saying I've typically I always worked with monoliths. I'm mm-hmm. not sure. I, I don't think I've worked at a place that had microservices, maybe there's a service here and there, right, to do like some really specific thing, but maybe it's not like a core part of the product. And so just in terms of the kind of when you're dealing with like a monolith and there's some specific part of it that is really tightly coupled to everything else, but it's got to change it or you need to refactor it in order to, you know, meet business requirements or you have some downtime and you want to try to just get it into like a more maintainable state. I'll often try to think about it like, well, what if that part were a microservice? Not that we're going to break it out, But, like, what if this part was a microservice? What would that mean? What would we have to take out of it because it's too tightly coupled to our database, maybe, or our business model, or any other set of things? Right. And then start to try, like, start trying to draw like a boundary around it. As a thought process, I don't think you're ever going to, in a monolith, separate it out from your database or separate, and nor would I suggest you should, but I think trying to just draw that boundary around it, like what is the kind of service boundary we're talking about here for this particular piece of code or this particular piece of functionality can start to help conceptualize like, well, what should it look like if that were the model, if that were the kind of like concept we have. And that can, I think, help start to think about, okay, well oh, I can see in this part of the code, it's really reaching into these other components across the code base. And there's no real need for it to do that. And that's really tightly coupling us to this and it's it's blocking us from, you know, making this other change maybe over here. So mm-hmm. what if we just break that part out and somehow the context it needed by reaching into the code, like way over on this other side of the code base, now that has to be passed in somehow, right? Mm-hmm. Through method calls or however that state is gonna set up. So I found that that kind of concept, like overall can really help try to like isolate features and try to break them apart to refactor things.
0: For you, is that typically a more of a collaborative exercise or maybe more sometimes, or is that more of like a personal thing that you find that you just need to be in front of a whiteboard or notepad, or is that a visual thing? Like what's that For me,
1: I operate pretty visually. I love diagramming software. I love, I'm not like a UML expert or anything, but I do really like diagrams that show us process. And I like process diagrams, but I also like diagrams that also show like modular components. Mm -hmm. And maybe diagramming a system that exists today, maybe even writing diagrams that have like, this is what it depends. These are its dependencies right now. Like this is what it's coupled to. If we can trace that out, sometimes Mm -hmm. it's hard to trace out, right? But, and then saying, okay, well, are these really necessary? Like, does it really need to be doing it this way? Can we break this one part out, this one dependency it has, instead of it reaching across the code base for it and do it, can we inject it somehow? Or can we take whatever data shape it needs to understand this part of it in a way that allows us to kind of like decouple these things. So that if we change that like part of the code way over there, we don't have to worry anymore about causing regressions over here because it doesn't access it like directly anymore. It's just getting data in. There's like an interface now between them.
0: Do you find that you have a, like a pattern for when you would start to do that? Like, is there like, okay, is it like a scenario where you're like an inflection point? You're like, I've just been beating, I'm done trying to find workarounds. Is it like,
1: you can I think it's usually away? when you're, yeah, when maybe business requirements have changed or the product has changed and all of a sudden, like this particular functionality needs to do something else, right? And maybe an engineer went in there and kind of, okay, well, we'll just change this method and add a bunch of stuff right that now like is now coupled to this other section and that can work for a while oh it's just one time right oh fine no big deal right but then as like it accumulates at some point at least if i'm now working on something and i'm, I'm in that part of the code looking at it i'm like oh okay this is i don't i can't objectively say like oh that's the moment but like there's some feeling of this is becoming difficult difficult to work on or difficult to or and or difficult to like reason about I think both. I think, yeah, it's difficult to reason about, or maybe it's, it's hard to trace the code. Like if I am working on, on something and I can't easily trace the code, and this is a problem in Ruby for me in general. I mean, I'm, I've been working in Ruby for 15 years, like, you know, the way we can mix in stuff, but oh, you can use, you know, inheritance, but you can also use concerns. And I think sometimes this, both of those concepts can be like abused a little bit yeah. and it becomes really hard to understand, like, wait a minute, where did this method come from? And now you have to like search the code base for it. And then you're not sure, oh, well, it came from a concern. Does anyone else use it? Because now it's not doing what I need it to do. You know? Sounds um, concerning. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So if things get hard to trace, that is also like a indicator to me that like, okay, this area of the code base should be, it, it should be considered when we have time to consider it for maybe a refactor.
0: We'll be back with our interview with John in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and writing on a on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, do you know some of the industry I should be taking Maintainable? Shoot me an email. It's Robbie with the Y at Maintainable.fm. And now let's get back to your interview with John Maniaci. Another topic I wanted to dig into with you is that we briefly touched on this earlier, actually, was, you know, as someone that's, you worked in an organization for quite a long time and kind of led in engineering teams and such, how do you balance, and you were talking about the different, like, say JavaScript frameworks, stuff like that. how do you, how do you think about when it's appropriate to introduce new technology and say new frameworks and things like that, or maybe even new programming languages into the mix of what your team is responsible for long-term? Because for example, I used to speak with a lot of organizations who sometimes maybe give their engineers a lot of free reign to experiment with new things. But then a couple of years later, a lot of those people may no longer be there. And now they're struggling to hire people that know those past other technology stacks and the ones that have, you know, that are being introduced at the moment. And, and there may be a smaller team now than they were maybe we're recording this mid January, 2024. And there's been layoffs pretty consistently in our industry for a little over a year now. And So a lot of people listening might be working on a smaller team and like, I'm responsible for lots of things across different things because we weren't able to, the previous people, stewards of this project, weren't able to go back and they introduced this new technology and we have like five different things we need to maintain in parallel. How do you think about that? Like making sure that your developers feel like they have an opportunity to experiment while also trying to... Maintain some some sense of, for lack of a better word, control. You know of what right. of the the future of the platform is going to continue evolving this overall system.
1: Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a push and pull. I mean, thinking back on my last, you know, when I was the director of engineering um, at this organization for for a long time, I was always really hesitant to introduce new technologies, like for example, React. Right, was becoming. One of the frameworks, of course, there was Angular and Vue and Ember. And like these things were starting to evolve pretty rapidly, um, you know, what, maybe 13 years ago or sort of a little less than that, maybe. And we were at a point where, you know, we were about to develop a new product inside of the code base, inside of the monolith using some of our same data models. But we had the opportunity to say, well, we know this is gonna be an SBA. We know we've used Backbone before. It wasn't always like serving our needs in the way we thought it might, or there were some things about it that seemed like could be more efficient from a developer standpoint. And one of our advisors, a technical advisor to the company, worked at Facebook at the time. It was still called Facebook back then. And he was like, well, why don't you use React, right? You know, that's what they're using there and uh, his project. And I'd already evaluated it at the time. And I said, look, like, we're a small team and React is moving too fast right now, right? Like, I don't want to choose React now. This is probably circa 2014, 15. And in a couple of years, there's either going to be some major update that's going to be a breaking change or we're gonna be kind of like stuck in a world that's gonna be now hard to maintain. So I was always really reluctant to introduce new things. Instead of choosing React, we decided, okay, well, we're going to try to find a like a framework that uses Backbone, which we found Marionette at the time, which, you know, it has its own issues, but we already knew the technology and it felt stable, right? Like Backbone, mm. even at that time in, I don't know, 2015, like a, a new version hadn't come out. And I think the maintainers had already said, like, this is it. We are not going to make a version of Backbone that will break anything at this point. It's just going to be any security or bug fixes at this point. And so as a small team, I felt like those were the right choices. But then eventually, as I kind of discussed, right, like eventually, even Marionette and Backbone were not meeting our needs anymore. And we had to move on to something else.
0: It's such a challenge, I think, with uh, wanting to not fall too far behind in your your perception as a, as a team of like what the latest trends are. But knowing that you're not necessarily, your your job is to make sure that the software works for the organization or the product or whatever that, you know, you're doing it not necessarily for you and your personal career and your Career growth, those things. You try to find as much overlap and, you know those uh, that Venn diagram, I suppose, as you possibly can. But I do, you know, I, I've talked with a lot of so many companies that are like, yeah, we are just we thought, you know, we trusted our developers to make these decisions, and but then they weren't around to take care of it a couple years later. But if I said no to them, they might have left anyways because then they felt like they're not getting to if I don't have these new technologies listed on my resume, then I'm stagnant. And so that's I feel yeah. like it's such a I- struggle to manage that expectation. How did you feel like you, do you feel like you ever had that in your own career, thought about that, or have you just felt like that was just what you were noticing with other people?
1: I think that, you know, for sure being a little conservative about like technology choices when I was the director of engineering at that, at that company yeah even personally right maybe i'd be like oh but i but i want to learn react right like it's happening and, I, and it seems like there's a kind of community coalescing around it in a pretty big way so i mean i know that not everyone has time or in their, the like bandwidth to have side projects and stuff like that but i am someone who like i don't know i like always have some weird little tech side project i'm working on that i might not release to anybody it's kind of just for me and so when i Wanted to learn React. Yeah, I was like, okay, well, I always wanted to do this weird little like side project, and okay, I'm gonna do it in React, not because it should be, but because I just want to learn it and understand like the ins and outs of that, right? I even like had the company pay for me to take like a two day React class in New York, and you know, just as we all got to evaluate it, right? Yeah. But uh, also uh, to to learn it more even for myself. And so I would say like, you know, if you're a developer at a company and oh, you can't work with the latest, coolest technology, you know, there are other ways to get exposure to it if it's about resume building, right? Mm -hmm. I I mean, I know it's an annoying reality of hiring and, and like the hiring landscape, especially right now, I think, because there are a lot of developers on the market where I do think companies are particularly right now are like filtering on like the technology you have like you can evidence on your resume, which I think is unfortunate because I mm-hmm. think that's a little bit like, hey, we're we're engineers, right? We are going to figure yeah. out the technology you use, right? It doesn't matter that, oh, you used Rails for 10 years or Python, right? Like you're going to figure it out. It's a fair
0: thing to say that. And and it, it's fascinating because I, for what, for better or for worse, I've decided that Ruby and Rails would be my the thing I would focus on. And I run a consultancy where that's the thing that we, primarily focused on because companies come to us because they have that very specific technology in place and they need help with that very specific thing. And I'm like, I go deep into it. Right. And so, but then I'm like, well, my environment's a lot different than if you're like at a product company, maybe at a couple different technology stacks in parallel and, and so it's an interesting thing when we're recruiting, it's hard for me to navigate that balance. I'm like, well, they have experience in other technologies, but. Are they going to be okay if they're going to go deep into this thing? Do they want to go deep into this particular tech stack? Because that's what we're offering. Because I could say we'd work on any technology and then we don't stand out in any sense from a marketing. You know, so it's an interesting thing where I'm like, how do you, yeah, how can you, you manage that? And then there's like another thing. It's a weird thing, but I think going back 15, 20 years ago, I think to some degree our identities as software programmers kind of was a little bit based off of some of our choices and our opinions, like these, this programming aesthetic ergonomics of this particular framework resonates with me. And I'm going to go over to this hill and be like, I'm on this team, I'm over here. I'm not saying we're better than that team necessarily, but we seem really productive in this, if we work together in this way. And if I were to get hired because I like, for, for a completely different programming language and ask to do something else because like I could learn it, doesn't necessarily mean that's what I'm as excited about. But I think people come in the industry and like, I want to be a programmer and be paid well, be compensated for my work, my ability to learn how to do things and solve engineering problems, regardless of the stack. That's great too. So there's, I think it's trying to, it's an interesting thing that how do you balance those different competing things when you're like, well, if I can hire someone that has a lot of experience with that technology, it's going to make my job easier as a consultant, but that may not be the right person to put on a product team.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think in the consulting world, for sure. Right. Like, I don't know everything that you do in that world, but I've done consulting myself and I feel like, yeah, I probably wouldn't go into like a Java shop and say like, oh, yeah, I'm going to refactor your code base like like myself. Like, I'm not going to. I don't have that skill set right in that language. I mean, could I figure it out? Probably. But They don't want to pay me to go through that learning curve. But I think in full-time employment where the company ostensibly is investing in their hires, like, you know, you wanna hire the people who you think are gonna do well for you in the long term, right? In the long run. And you wanna invest in them. And I think that, you know, the technology stacks you've worked with are like less important in that, in that regard.
0: For those listening right now, and are maybe they're maybe they're employed or they're looking for a new job, do you feel like at this point in the you know again we're recording this mid January twenty twenty four Do you have some thoughts or advice on like how you should kind of should you lean one way or another on that sort of thing? Maybe lean into your existing things, or how can you illustrate? Have you seen that done well where you? You've might, maybe you've hired people yourself or worked with people that were able to get hired, even though they didn't have a lot of direct experience with the tech stack that the companies that's posted the job ad is working with, but knows that they can hire off the potential that they can pick it up pretty quickly.
1: Well, I'll speak to the moment right now, you know, having just gone through like several, well, a few months of interviewing for a new role. And having interacted with like many companies, phone calls, Zoom meetings, interview funnels, take home assignments, leap code, like I've done, like, I really experienced the whole gamut this fall. And having been on both sides of like the interviewing table, if you will, right? Like, I would say, like, right now, I really get the sense that companies are receiving so many resumes that they're using kind of like the filters that they need to filter them somehow. Yeah. And maybe one of the easiest filters a hiring, you know, either a technical recruiter or screener can do is to say, like, well, we use Python or Rails or whatever. And you don't really have that on your resume. So I'm not going to look at that resume because I have another hundred that do you have that experience. And I think that's just an easy filter right now. This is anecdotal like yeah. <laughs> information, right? And that's anecdotal in the sense that I I probably sent 60 or 70 resumes and cover letters, you know, in September, October to the mm. places. And I found I had the most traction and the most callbacks when I really tailored those cover letters and resumes to Rails, to companies where I knew they were using Rails. And I highlighted like my pretty extensive Rails experience. Companies that were like, oh, we use python but it's okay if you don't really have python experience you know i mean okay well it's an interpreted language there's a lot of similarities in the in the syntax like you know i mean it's not i would very rarely get like a contact about that role and i don't know that's anecdotal but i do get the sense that people because there's so many resumes coming into inboxes right now that Mm -hmm. it's they're filtering because they have to they're they're human and they can't look at two thousand of them or whatever right and even if you were able to come up with some good algorithms
0: or not to to rank those hundreds of resumes that you're, you're receiving for thousands of job applicants. Just be, by the fact that there are people that do know that particular tech stack, they're going to probably have a slight leaning towards that to be like, well, it's one, a few little less things we're going to need to help ramp them up with, right? It's hard to show that crossover thing. So I get that. It's It's an interesting... Because two years ago, I feel like it was the complete op, you know, everybody was trying to like, think about like, who are we getting to work with? Let's talk about soft skills and, you know, and, and who's going to be part of our team and now kind of an ebb and flow thing, I suppose.
1: But yeah, definitely. I feel like, you know, you receive, you were DMs, right? In LinkedIn or something from Mm -hmm. recruiters or other companies. I feel like there's, you can kind of, at least I can kind of trace the like, tech landscape (laughs) when, when you get the different types of messages.
0: And out of curiosity, when you you know highlighted use Rails as a specific example there, how granular into Rails might you have communicated in your resume or in your cover letter? Would you get down to talking about specific Ruby like libraries in the Ruby community people might be working with or
1: only if they were highlighted in the job, okay. you know, listing. I mean, that's obviously a strategy you kind of want to use anyway when you're writing your cover letter, is to like really, if there are, but you know, as many overlapping technologies that they list, right? Like to get into those. I would not yet technically, typically get into like specific libraries unless they really mentioned like we use a I don't know, particular
0: yeah, <laughs> aspect yeah, I,
1: of something. Yeah. Like we use active storage. Okay, great. Yeah, I've done that. Funny, yes. I'll tell you that I did that, and I did it for an e-commerce company sure. or whatever, right? No, that, that makes sense.
0: Well, with that, um, a couple of quick last questions for you. Is there a non-tech, non-software book that you found yourself recommending to peers? on a regular Non-tech,
1: basis? non-software book. I'm just, yeah, thinking about Homo Sapiens, love that book, mm. non-tech, non-software book, and the way he traces just different aspects of being human and what that means for civilization and us, mm. I guess. I thought that was really fascinating.
0: Nice. I'll um, include a link to that in the show notes for our listeners.
1: I also, another one I'll say is it's called, oh, I have to look it up. I think it's called The the End of Everything by Katie Mack. I may be wrong on the title now, but Katie Mack is definitely the author and she's an astrophysicist. And she's talking about the, like, I think there's four or five theories about how the universe will end. And it's, it's very fascinating. I think she does a really good job of laying those very difficult concepts for people who aren't astrophysicists to mm-hmm. kind of understand.
0: Nice. So I'll definitely look that up as well and include that for people in the show notes. Where can people, do you blog or anything like that? On I don't blog. Later?
1: I am a little bit of a social media hermit as well. I gave up social media several years ago and haven't looked back. So people will say like, hey, what's your DM me on Instagram? And I'm like, I can't really yeah. do that. <laughs> Um, you'll have to text me or email me.
0: All right. Sounds good. Well, um, I'll, maybe I'll post a link to your uh, LinkedIn or something for people. If they want to yeah, I do have LinkedIn. To, to, to find you one way or another. But with that, John, thank you so much for stopping by to talk shop with us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.